Thank you, Sarah, Sarah, and Terry. Ah, oh, Terry, I should have put you up there, so I say Sarah, Sarah, Terry, Terry. I'll, I'll remember that for a future week. <laughs> oh, friends, this morning as we come to God's word, we are going to turn to the letter to the Ephesians. Um, remember with me uh, that before this, Um, We spent Lent looking at different words to prepare us for what happened on the cross. Words like simple, loss, signs, born, resolute, hosanna, and resurrection. Before that, we looked together at the book of Ruth. And now we're turning our attention to this letter to the Ephesians. We're doing what's called Lectio Continua which means we make our way through a book or through a letter. So as we did with the book of Ruth, we'll make our way through the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Before we turn together there, uh, let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, may it indeed be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Christ, our utmost concern. This we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. Friends, let's look together at Ephesians 1. We're going to start our journey in this letter with the first 10 verses of the passage. Hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Such beautiful words as we begin this letter together. Uh, There's a few things I would like for us to remember before we enter into this letter. Uh, You'll notice in the first verse that it's addressed to God's people in Ephesus, God's holy people in Ephesus. So that group of people, the holy people in Ephesus, likely included a diverse group of believers This group of believers was likely Greek and Roman and Jewish in background. Interestingly, though, that line, God's holy people in Ephesus, is not in the earliest of manuscripts 
of this letter. So that means that it originally was not there and likely that it circulated to other churches in the area. So it's for God's holy people in Ephesus and in other places. And that's good news for us because we're included then in the recipients of this letter. And finally, Ephesus itself is located in what's now modern day Turkey, and it is a port city. It's along the water. That means it had a lot of tourists coming in and coming out. So God's holy people in Ephesus, yes, but God's holy people as they were coming in and leaving, got to hear, receive this letter and take it back to their home or with them to wherever they were going. This was a very busy, bustling place. And this letter, because remember, people can't read and most people can't write. This letter, when it was read out loud to groups, was then remembered and taken with all of these people to all of these different places. So it's a very um, well-circulated letter. And the shape of it as a whole sort of looks like this. In the first 10 verses, we experience God's immensity, his bigness, and his awesomeness. It starts all the way out here, farther than my hands can stretch. There's this huge scope of God's intent that all would be brought near to him as sons and daughters. We start with this huge, immense scale. And as we move through the letter, the audience um, gets narrower and narrower. So we start way out here, then the audience shrinks in a little bit to Jews and Gentiles. We in the Bible are called Gentiles. Then a little bit more narrowly to Gentiles. Then even more narrowly to the church. Then to households within the church. And then individual believers who are invited to put on the armor of God. And that passage is a really popular one from this letter. So it goes like that. It starts big and then gets small again. So I think what's helpful for us to remember then as we encounter this letter, and especially as we start in this really big, expansive space, um, is that what Paul has in mind is not necessarily the individual's personal relationship with Jesus. Okay? Paul doesn't necessarily have in mind one individual. It's not just, you know, my devotional life, my prayer life, my disciplines, my conviction, my sin, but that you in Ephesus, which, um, or in the letter to the Ephesians, that you is not like you, Chris, or you, Tim, or you, Bob. It's actually y'all, okay? You all, not me, but y'all. So Texans are really good at this, right? But y'all, right? This is for the community of Ephesus. It's not for the individual, though individuals will be addressed at the end of the letter, but this is a letter that's for y'all, for we and us. So that's important because when we consider how something applies, we typically think, how does it apply to me, to my personal relationship with Jesus, to my prayer life, to my sin? And that's good to think about, and we should. But this letter invites us to think about y'all, to think about North Holland, to think about our families, to think about Holland and Zealand, 
to think about how y'all are brought in and how God invites y'all to respond, not just you. I'd encourage you to hang on to that tension as we make our way through the letter because that's our instinct in our modern day to make it more individual and personal. That's not bad, but it's not where this letter begins. So let's keep that in mind together. So with those things in mind, y'all, let's take a closer look at these 10 verses. In these 10 verses, which are very full, there's lots of things in here, words that we recognize, ideas that we treasure. A mystery is described, two mysteries. The first is the mystery of God's love. Bible has a lot to say about love. Bible has even more to say about God's love. And it is a mystery. It is. It is beyond our understanding. This is a love that is, in the Psalms, wide, long, high, deep, immense. It is unfathomable and huge. In our passage, in verse 10, it's a love that longs for unity. And as we make our way through the letter, we'll see that God's love is defined as one that cultivates hope. It even brings us back to life. It gives us breath. God's love is a love that breaks down barriers. It's a love that preaches peace, we'll learn in chapter 2. It's a, and it's a love that strengthens the faithful and it strengthens the vulnerable. And in chapter 4, a very compelling chapter, it's a love that expects us to change. It expects us to change. To become a people who are humble. Remember, y'all, not me, y'all. To become a people who are humble, gentle, patient protectors of shalom. A people who are one in faith and in baptism. It is a love, we'll learn, that compels us to speak authentically and wholesomely with one another. It is a love that tells us we must submit ourselves to this profound mystery of God's love. You know about God's love, I hope. I hope this isn't the first time um, you've heard that. God's love is a weight that we carry as his people. It's a weight. And sometimes that weight is a warmth in our chest. And sometimes that weight is a pit in our stomach. It's a beautiful burden, God's love. And it is indeed a mystery because the moment we think we know who needs it, or who has it, or who deserves it. God's love surprises us by opening its arms even wider, all the way out here. God's love is a mystery, and another mystery emerges here. The mystery is God's desire to bless, or to lavish, as the text says in verse 8. In this passage, God blesses us by choosing us. He chooses us. As we move on through the letter to the Ephesians, we're blessed because he marks us with a seal. We're blessed because he makes us alive with Christ, because he saves us by grace through faith and brings us near through Jesus. We are so blessed that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are in the family of God. The desire of God to bless at all of these levels, Jews and Gentiles, 
the church, the household, the individual. That desire to bless defines God's character in this letter. That is who God is. He is a God of blessing, of lavishness, of abundance. That's just who God is. He is over the top. He is extravagant and overflowing. And he does this, he blesses because he wants to. Not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but because he wants to, because it brings him so much pleasure and so much joy to bless. In its original Greek, uh, verses 3 through 10 are actually all one sentence. So if you're a middle or high school student, you know that's a big no-no in English classes to have a sentence that just goes on and on and on and on. And so if you're reading it in Greek, it's actually a little bit hard to follow along because as Paul is writing this, it's almost like he's tripping over his own words. He's sort of trying to be extra clear, but he's also very clearly overwhelmed by just how awesome and amazing God is. It's like he's, he's kind of out of breath. It reminds me of like listening to a child talk about their favorite toy or their favorite game. I love this about it. I love that about it. Will you play with me? And this is great and this is fun and here are the rules. Let me explain them all to you. It's just like someone who's overflowing with exuberance and excitement and joy. It's sort of like this. Praise be to God because he chose us before all things and now we must be blameless all because of love, all in the name of lavish blessing. We are redeemed because of Jesus we are forgiven with a wisdom and understanding that has been loving us since the beginning and this is all for his glory, glory throughout heaven and earth to bring all things into unity because this mystery is the king of the universe. Praise be to the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He just is so exuberant and excited to share this with us. And what I love too, um, especially as a vocalist, is that in the Greek as well, some of those words rhyme with each other. And so many biblical scholars believe that this was a song, that these verses were a song that the people would sing together as they gathered, similar to what we do with the doxology at the end of our service. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I just love that. I love that these are the words about their God that they remember as they gather. And as a musician, too, I just wish I knew what that song sounded like. So Paul's response to the resurrection, to the life and death of his Savior, Jesus, is clearly one of awe and gratitude. He is overwhelmed, just overwhelmed. I wonder what our response is to the resurrection. Seven days ago, we remembered that together. I wonder how you responded this week. But Paul's a person, too, um, and he's not always like that little child so excited to share what he loves. Um, sometimes he really struggles, uh, wrestles quite significantly, um, and thankfully we have his writing so we can see that happens to him. If you read actually the rest of Ephesians or other places in Paul's writing, um, you'll see that he really does struggle. He wrestles significantly as he tries to find his footing as an early church leader. In Ephesians, he describes himself as less than the least, less than the least of all the Lord's people. 
He describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He describes himself as a servant of the good news of the gospel. He believes that his calling is to, quote, preach the boundless riches of Christ to the Gentiles. But as he does that, he also feels like less than the least, just less than the least of these. Paul often, um, not so much in Ephesians, but in other places, um, just talks about how surprised he was that God extended this to him. And he experienced that when he was on the road to Damascus and blinded by God. Um, he wrote about his amazement and total shock about this in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, which I'll read for you. Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Do you remember that about Paul from Acts? He was a persecutor, a blasphemer, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, right? Because that's who God is along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, writes Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul holds that tension as a believer. There's two truths. The first truth is that he is a sinner, and that causes him great grief. He is a sinner, and he carries the weight of that. And he is deeply loved by a God who desires to bless, and that brings him such great joy to talk about, to share with others. And that joy and grief that he feels is something he cannot contain. It is a fire within him. And that same fire met Moses in the burning bush. That same fire could not be contained by the prophet Jeremiah. And that same fire descended upon those who were gathered at Pentecost. Once that fire gets a hold of you, it just consumes you. It cannot be contained. There's joy and there's grief. And it is not just for me. It's y'all. Oh. Paul is so passionate. He is consumed by this fire. Um, interestingly, this passage from Ephesians, um, if we were following the lectionary, is usually read at Christmas time. So the lectionary, again, are predetermined texts. Some churches use these um, to study scripture together. And it's typically read on the second or third Sunday of Christmas. So right after Christmas, before the new year. And when it is read at Christmas, there are other texts that the lectionary creator suggests that you read with this passage. And I want to read for you um, one of the texts that the lectionary suggests you pair this passage with because it's from the Old Testament. And I love when the God of the Old Testament meets the God of the new. So hear these words from Jeremiah 31. This is God speaking. Sing with joy for Jacob. 
Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the lands of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am their father and they are my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. I, says God, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy them with abundance and my people will be filled with bounty. Friends, God is the one who saves people. He gathers them. He leads them, delivers them, redeems them, and fills them. This same God, this same God appears in the letter to the Ephesians. He blesses, chooses, predestines. He freely gives, redeems, forgives, and lavishes for his pleasure and out of a deep, abundant love for y'all. When I consider what this is meant to evoke in us as we receive the word, um, I really liked how scholar Hans Wiersma thought about that. Um, he offered this quote. We kid ourselves when we think these words from Ephesians can be viewed through a microscopic lens. No. These words about Christ are so grand, so large scale, so universal, that the only way to view them is as you would view the heavens on a moonless night, gazing with awe, wondering at the vastness, convinced and convicted of your own finiteness. I love that imagery of hearing these words of praise and just looking out at the sky, especially on a beautiful night in the summertime, whether you're out camping with friends or family or just taking a walk after the sun has set, and just looking up at the enormousness. It's just a mystery. It's so beautiful. It's so breathtaking. And there's things we know about the sky. There's things we know about constellations or about planets or about galaxies, but it is such a mystery to us. And I wonder if that's the place that Paul wants us to begin as we go into this letter. Sure, there are specific and really helpful instructions for us as we make our way through, but this is the place where we start, just looking up at the sky that God has created and saying, wow, thank you for inviting me into this. This is so, so much more than I could ever ask 
or imagine. Or as Paul says, it is immeasurably more than all I could have asked or imagined. Um, We're seven days out of Easter. And if we were reading the gospel text, um, we would see um, that seven days out of Easter, some of the disciples weren't like living out here right? Some of the disciples were really wrestling, and very understandably so, um, with fear. They were wrestling with doubt um, and just trying to understand what this actually meant for them and how they were supposed to lead this movement that Jesus started when he wasn't there with them in the same way. And so if that's where you are this morning, know that you're in really good company. You're with the disciples. It's okay seven days outside of Easter to be dealing with those things, with fear, with doubt, with uncertainty, with insecurity. But also know, too, that Jesus came to Doubting Thomas, and he showed him the wounds in his side, and he called him back to the vastness. He called him to look out at the sky and to remember just how immense God's great love was for him. And it was for him, Doubting Thomas. Or if you're in that place today, seven days outside of Easter, where you're with Paul and you're breathless just sharing the good news of God's love with everyone, that is really, really good too. As we leave from this place this morning, I encourage you to just think about where you are right now. Are you over here with Paul just singing the praises of God? Or are you walking with the disciples, experiencing some fear or some doubt or some uncertainty? about what would happen next. Know that God is with both. God is with Paul. God was with the disciples. And he is with us, too. I'd also encourage you to think about not only that application piece here, but to think about y'all. Right? So y'all, North Holland, where are we? Are we singing the praises over here with Peter, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who da 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 Are we over there, or are we, y'all, over here with the disciples, dealing with some doubt, some insecurity, uncertainty, or fear? As we wonder about that together, the good news is that we do so with this God, with a God who loves to love and who blesses to bless. And it's that God who was with us in the wandering, with us in the waiting, with us as we hold these important questions before him. Friends, as we move into our week, let us not forget. I know it's easy to forget, but let's not forget what happened here. And may that inspire us as we love our church and our neighbor well. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.